Welcome to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast, brought to you by DSW Ministries. Your host is singer, songwriter, speaker, and domestic violence advocate, Diana Winkler. She is passionate about helping survivors in the church heal from domestic violence and abuse and trauma. This podcast is not a substitute for professional counseling or qualified medical help. Now, here is Diana. Well, hello, everybody. How are you doing? I am glad that you're here today. I am so excited about my guest today. I will have my first guest from Australia. And it's the first time that I've had two people on the podcast at the same time. Now, if you've been following my story, I have mentioned the Harris family briefly from Pastor Scott's church, where I was baptized and where I married my ex. So let me read you their bios. Joy studied elementary education before going on to teach at the primary school level, as well as homeschooling for 26 years. She has ministered in schools, religious education classes, Sunday schools, and holiday Bible clubs, as well as through her speaking at various seminars and retreats. Joy is also a musician who has collaborated on multiple recording projects, maintained a private teaching studio for over 30 years, and has been an accompanist where she lived. Joy currently is retired does pet sitting, and is a domestic violence advocate, working to educate Christians especially and support victims. Joy has seven children, 21 grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren. So Joy was a missionary's wife in the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church, I believe since 1995, in Nora, Australia. And yeah, she is a talented pianist. I remember that very much. So she suffered domestic violence, abuse, and rape at the hand of her ex-husband, Larry. Her oldest son, Kevin, who I went to Bible college with, has turned against her. She has not been able to see her grandchildren. She is here on the show with one of her sons, Jason, who is supporting his mom through everything she and their family has been through. So a little bit about Jason. Jason is a writer, pastor, and academic. He has authored multiple books, articles, and papers, including his book, Theological Meditations on the Gospel. Jason has degrees in theology, music, accounting, and research. He is currently working on his PhD from James Cook University, as well as serving as pastor at Cross Point Church. Jason has lived in beautiful Cairns, Australia since 2007. I have not seen them since Y2K New Year's Eve service at Pastor Scott's church. I saw Kevin 
last during our college reunion, I think it was 2005. So this will be part catching up and part interview for me. Now their story was very public. They were on 60 Minutes Australia and a few other media outlets. So that is why we will be mentioning some real names of those involved today. Joy and Jason have graciously agreed to come and tell you their story. Now we will be talking about rape in this conversation. We will not be getting graphic, but it's just a trigger warning if that is something that you're really sensitive about. Their story is really personal to me because these are people that I care about and they were very influential in my Christian walk. So here is my conversation with Joy and Jason. So please welcome from down under Joy Harris and her son, Pastor Jason Harris. Thanks for coming on the podcast, you guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. You are my first Aussie guests. <laughs> ah, excellent. And we finally got the time zones figured out, at least for me. Um, so what time is it there? Oh, so it's about 12.39 p.m. Yeah. afternoon. <laughs> so we're recording this, and it's it's 20 till 8 where I'm at for you listeners. And uh, so it's that's, what, 14 hours apart? <laughs> yeah, um, we're ahead. You can expect tomorrow to be a very sunny, lovely day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Since we're already in tomorrow. <laughs> so we like to start the conversation with some fun stuff because um you know this is a dark topic i i deal in dark dark topics all the time so since you're the first guest from australia i'd like to ask what do you like best about living in australia i like the people the friendliness the sensible it's beautiful here. We're surrounded by gorgeous mountains. And we have eight northern beaches north of the city. Wow. Just We're up in the tropics up here in far north Queensland. Just love it here. How about you, Jason? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what's not to love? <laughs> it's home. <laughs> it's home. But no, I do, I do love um, Australian society. It's a very relatively equitable society and has really um, come a long way particularly in terms of domestic violence and I really you know I love being part of a society like that so, long way to go oh, for sure yeah. but um, definitely um, made really good progress there so Australia looks after its vulnerable people very well and uh, I appreciate that wow I didn't know that that's awesome. I watched that show, you know, about the zoo. We watch it all the time with um, Crikey. I can't remember their names right now. <laughs> Steve Irwin? Yeah, Steve Irwin. We watched, we, watched <laughs> the, we watched the the zoo show from Australia, and we really like it. 
What what do you think are the biggest misconceptions about life in Australia? I mean, people don't realize Australia is a continent. It's huge. <laughs> what, what what would you say? It's as big as America, actually. <laughs> um, people think that everywhere you go, there's going to be a snake around the corner or a spider <laughs> to bite you, and it's not. There are crocodiles up here, but you just learn where they live and be smart. And uh, in a if you want to swim, you swim in the nets. They have big nets out so that the crocs and the stingers don't get you. And <laughs> it's it's just beautiful. And we can look out at any point at night in our front yard. There'll be five to ten kangaroos. It's awesome. Wow. Do you know the, the movie um, Dot and the Kangaroo? No. It must be Americanized. It was from the 80s. It's a cartoon. And everything that I knew about Australia was from that cartoon. It was on HBO, I think. But what do you think, Jason, about misconceptions? Sorry, I got nothing. <laughs> was no there idea. anything that surprised you when you went when you when you moved to Australia? Mm, not sure I'd remembered if there was. Um, yeah, you yeah, were pretty young. I was pretty young. <laughs> just turned thirteen, but yeah, no. So. But I appreciate you guys coming on on the show and talking about difficult topic, your story, your days as, you know, your early days as a missionary and the abuse that you endured over the years. So let's start at the beginning. So Joy, how did you meet Larry and how are the early years of your marriage? We met at a mutual friend's home. Um, we were all going to carpool down from Pennsylvania to Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina, about a 12-hour drive. And um, so the mutual friend's family had our two families over, and the Harris's and my mom and my brother and I. And that first night we hit it off, you know, I was playing piano and he was singing. And uh, then, then, you know, we rode down together and got to know his siblings and then we started dating um, pretty well straight off. And uh, at Bob Jones, if you don't have money to go to the snack shop, you go to this big, huge, giant warehouse, looks like, just full of couches. And you sit and talk and you have monitors walking around, making sure you're not touching <laughs> your hand, holding hands and stuff. So you talk and you, you get to know each other that way, which is a good thing. And so he... I don't know, right away he started assuming marriage and um, never did ask me to marry him. <laughs> um, and so he said, well, let's learn what the wife's supposed to be like in the marriage. So first Peter two, and, you know, Ephesians five, all the submit things and husbands ahead of the house and stuff. And um, I had never heard that before anyway. So and if we had a disagreement about something, he'd say, well, you should start practicing submitting because you're going to have to do that for married. And, you know, so that was the backdrop. Um, the first Christmas home on holidays, uh, you know, driving back to Pennsylvania in the backseat of the car, he took all kinds of liberties. I tried to stop him. He wouldn't. So for the whole 12 hours, it was a struggle. And um, then during 
the holidays, he'd come over and visit and always trying to, you know, kiss and stuff. And, but to my mind, uh, it was proof he loved me and because I was lacking in that from my broken home. And I didn't think much of it, particularly like the, especially not to stop it because I always felt like no one would want to be my boyfriend anyway, you know? And so I was like thrilled to have anybody. Anyway, then, um, but all, there was the control right from the start. Oh. And um, had our first child 11 months after marriage and right away, the inconvenience of a crying baby and the idea that he was going to make this child obey and grow up to serve God um, made him very unloving, uncontrolling, and his anger would come out. He would shake the baby and, um, you know, one month old baby hard. And I remember one time grabbing the baby out of his hands and I just ran outside. I'm like, I'm not going to let him hurt my child. And I stood out in the middle of the road. It was dark. Uh, we had a car, but he kept the keys in his pocket. Um, I didn't even know where the police station was. I had no money. I had no phone. <laughs> I'm like, mm. I have no choice. So after crying out there by myself for a while, I had to come back in. And um, so this was Kevin that you had? Yeah. Yep. Wow. And 12 months later, the next one was born. And you know, so it's, it was from the beginning, from our dating days, the control. So you weren't raised in a Christian home, I suppose? I was. Oh, you were? Um, yeah, my parents were leaders in a church of 1500. Um, but yeah, there was issues there too. And uh, my dad left. I was raised by a single mom with my brother. Wow, I didn't know that. Um, I think that you shared with me when we we would chat when I was over your house a few times that you guys got married justice of the peace. Yeah, he wanted to. Well, what happened was um, in the middle of our junior year, he got expelled for multiple demerits, you know, not being on time and not turning in assignments things so he had to leave campus and he said you want you need to come with me and well elope and I had just been elected president of my society I was doing very well in in grades we it was just like one more week I just had to take my exams and I would have got all the credits for all that study but he didn't care he just you need to come with me now and um, of course I have to submit so we left, we snuck out of campus, off campus, and um, went and lived with his brother for a week and then went and eloped. Yeah, I think you showed me the picture and him sweeping you off your feet and you looked happy, <laughs> at least in the picture. But yeah. uh, I, had, I had no idea. Now, I met your family at you know, Pastor Scott's church and your family was very well respected in the church. There was this, there was this outward conformity that you kept. And 
you know, your, your family took up a whole row of chairs <laughs> in church mm-hmm. and you sang like the Von Trapp family, <laughs> which I really loved. And the children obeyed outwardly, you know, they were obedient, good kids, but nobody knew why <laughs> the terror at home that you guys made them. are, yeah, you guys were the most well-behaved children I have ever met. And my, my siblings were terrors and were nothing like, like you guys. I mean, you let me hang out at your house and we had fun and um, I had good memories there. It just floors me. I didn't see any, I didn't see any abuse. Um, it was so well hidden um i think larry used to complain that i would come over and eat all of your food <laughs> and that i would never bring anything um my brother's we glad to have you. <laughs> i know that you were larry and i had a, a few words um and i don't know if you remember this jason but um i wouldn't eat i wouldn't eat my vegetables when I ate over at your house and your dad used to say, you know, Jason, eat your vegetables and be a good, good example to Diana. So I would shove those vegetables in my mouth because all your kids were watching me not eat their vegetables, not eat my vegetables. And so, <laughs> oh, my. but my brothers would eat, everything in the house there was never any food in the house because they would just like eat everything and you know my my mother didn't like that I was a Christian I don't know if you remember that but definitely I liked hanging at your house because you were a good Christian family and I bought you guys Christmas presents I just wanted to thank them for all the you know the things that they've done for me I don't know if you remember, uh, I was working at Taco Bell, and you guys used to come and visit me (laughs) at work. (laughs) Yeah, you had it hard. You were, I was admiring you for your bravery and standing up as a Christian and following Christ, even though your family was against that. I think you even adopted another family to come live with you. Uh, that was renting a room and so it was a pretty full house <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> jason what was it like growing up with six siblings and being a, a missionary's kid um yeah it was good six six kids big family was um was nice never had any um, concerns i think some kids probably do being an mk yeah um yeah, it was, it had its ups and its downs, you know, it had its benefits. Um, I mean, I don't think it was good for me, the benefits, but, you know, you're looked up to and all of that in the churches, um, which I don't think was good for me. I think there's something unhealthy in that, but um, yeah, look, I had a huge number of experiences, visited a huge number of churches and um were treated very well in that. So yeah, look, it was it was a lot of beneficial experiences. I remember Larry or you guys came to FBT and I think it was during a missions conference. And I remember Larry 
I mean, this was such a vivid memory. But Larry preaching about how he spanked you kids, I mean, he was very specific in telling the whole audience. Now, my dad and my mom spanked me, but um, I can only count on one hand with change left over how many times that was. And it was for major infringements. Like we, my sister and I stole from our neighbors or we almost started a fire in the forest or we were trespassing in somebody's house, uh, an empty house. So um, I think that kind of kept me on the straight and narrow, but um, what do you think about corporal punishment and how you were raised? Yeah, uh, look, I think one of the single worst parts of the abuse we went through, and it just, just to clarify, um, all of the Harris children grew up in an abusive home. Um, all of the Harris children were abused. Um, that's not something that's necessarily always clear when we talk about our story, but um, probably the very worst thing was that dad would go to churches and preach on the family. That was his strong point. In fact, um, the reason we got into most of the churches we did was because some key leaders in the movement loved the family and loved him preaching on the family and told all their friends, you know, get these guys in, they're really good. Um, so dad was viewed as a guru on the family, you know, and, and you know, a leader in that. And uh, if only other people would be like him, you know, and so we would see things happen in the car on the way to church and literally 10 minutes later be up singing about the family and then him preaching and that the hypocrisy of that and worse than that it was this is god this is how god wants families to be that was incredibly destructive just beyond um when you think when you say spanking these were beatings like sometimes over 100 strokes sometimes with a two by four that was broken so yeah, so when it comes to, to corporal punishment, honestly, I'm not against it per se. I think there are people who practice it um, well. I, I do not believe that the Bible requires corporal punishment. No, I there's, there's some people that, you know, you know, daddy's mad at me. You know, that's all, that's all it takes. And then you got yeah. others that, you know, they need a little that's firmer it. hand. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's some room for parental discretion, and and it is arguably a biblical option. But um, th- there is a big difference between what Dad did. Dad sometimes spanked, um, but much of the time it was not spankings. It was not corporal punishment. It was beatings. It was violent. It was harm. It was um, you know led to injury. It, it was not. We're not talking about a belt. We're talking about a baseball bat. Or, two by four. Um, so yeah, we're not, you know, th- this is not snake. This is violence. This is just oh, pure yeah. violence, but in the name of God. So, um, you know, he would quote Bible verses while they did it. Um, there are Bible verses I still can't look at or read without having trauma response, which, you know, as a pastor, that's, that's pretty bad <laughs> to be traumatized by part, parts of scripture. But, um, yeah, I mean, I was, my, my sister and I were, we got the strap, but again, I, 
there weren't very many times, but it was always okay. This is this is this is why you're getting the strap, and then afterwards, you know, he came in and told us, you know, he loved us, and you know, you can't you can't do those things. Those are wrong. And my parents raised us Catholic, but um, you know, I mean, we had we had morals, we had standards, but when I got older, my sister and I got older, we stayed out of trouble, but my two younger brothers, and I don't know if you remember Matt, he used to come over and play with you, two boys. Mm-hmm. Um, he, him and my other brother, they found out from their friends that, well, they could call CPS, child protection, if dad, you know, spanked them. And they were bad. <laughs> they were, <laughs> they were they did all kinds of horrible things and um so my dad never was able to spank them because he was afraid that somebody would call child protection on him anyway yeah there's there's definitely discipline loving discipline and beatings that you guys survived and that just that just breaks my heart i was it well, you, you said it wasn't really a huge adjustment going from the United States to Australia, probably because you were so young, Jason. Yeah, oh, look, it was a huge, <clears throat> huge thing. It was probably the biggest thing that you know, happened in my life, but it wasn't hard. It was, this was home. Our parents' attitude was, this is, we're Australians now, we're, this is home. Um, and that's how we thought from day one. Um and yeah, I, I'm glad, you know, from, from that point on, I felt myself to be Australian and we became citizens. And um, yeah, so this just became home for us and it's it, um, probably harder to leave it than to be here. <laughs> Absolutely. I can understand that. In my Mending the Soul healing groups that I lead, we talk a lot about what does an abuser look like? And... I'm finding out in my advocacy work that abusers don't look like the stereotype, you know, laying in a lawn, you know, you know, the wife beater shirt and sitting on the couch with a beer and watching TV. That is, that can be an abusive person, but a lot of times the profile of an abuser is charming, funny, good looking, well respected by the community a likable person, but behind closed doors, they're a different person. And I would say that about Larry is that I never would have guessed he was an abusive person. I'll pass it to Jane a minute, but um, I had, when we started the church in Australia here, I had women in the church come to me and say, I'd like to talk to you about a a problem I'm having in my marriage, but you wouldn't understand. Your husband is so wise and gentle and you just wouldn't understand my problems. Mm -hmm. Little did they know. Yeah. And that is a a classic example of an abuser. Um, Domestic violence is usually far more sinister than Um, You you know, you take the scenario of the guy who actually gets drunk and gets violent, and that's probably the lowest grade of domestic violence. It's still very serious, Um, but probably the lowest grade, the least damaging is for dad to get drunk and hit the kids. Um, 
it, it's when dad isn't drunk and he's got an ideological reason. You know, it, it's psychological torture. It's, it's, it's in the mind and, and it's 10 times worse when you add Christianity. So this is God, you know, God told me to do this. And the more, the more Christian and the, the better it looks, I think, you know, in many ways, the more destructive and the more. Yeah, the fundamental Baptists are really good on outward conformity. The, the more mm. perfect you look on the outside and the more holy you seem to be. And I think that Larry is probably a classic narcissist. Um, I'm now telling my story uh, in public on my podcast now. It's time. Although I've told it many times in my my small groups it's the first time telling my story in full and you know my ex-husband nobody believed me when I said that he was abusing me because he was you know a church planner and he was respected and you know hardworking and good looking and he's he's funny and personable at church but once we got home it was the same story my ex did didn't hit me but he did every other kind of abuse. Um, more on the neglect side of abuse. Jason, a lot of people in the church don't think that that rape is even possible in a marriage because they claim that when you get married, that's a lifetime of consent. Uh, so there's a, yeah, there's a view in Christianity that rape is impossible in marriage. <clears throat> And uh, unfortunately, even some jurisdictions hold that position that you know, they don't really recognize rape if it's in marriage. And then, thankfully, that is changing around the world in jurisdictions. And um, society needs to change with it. And the church should be leading this. Unfortunately, the church is dragging its heels. So what, what does the Bible say about it? Well, um, I, I would say... A lifetime of consent is literally the opposite of consent. Um, it's not consent. Um, the best comparison to that would be slavery. Well, you know, when you became a slave, you lost all, all um, rights. Well, okay, but if marriage is best compared to slavery, um, you're not reading your Bible. <laughs> um, you know, that's just horrifying. So uh, I would just say, look, uh, a person in a marriage is still a person. Yeah. And if you ever come up with any policy that erases their personhood, that treats the marriage they are in as more import important than the they who is in the marriage, um, you're, you're gonna have a mm -hmm. destructive dynamic there. And it's evil, it's not godly, it's it's evil, it's demonic, it's satanic, it is from hell, it is not from God, it is not scriptural. Um, yes, scripture has clear teaching that, that uh, sex should not be weaponized in order to win arguments with the husband over long periods of time with, with no willingness to address the issues. That's obviously going to be a problem. And mm -hmm. Scripture saying, look, address the issues sort these things out and um, become friends again. And that's, that's what scripture is saying. Um, 
it is not saying, <laughs> you know, you, you therefore can can never say no, which which is just dangerous, incredibly dangerous. And sometimes it's physically violent, and sometimes it's spiritual manipulation. Like, well, God told me that this is this is how it is. This is God's command for for husbands and wives, but that is totally false. My ex um, was the opposite. He he used sex as a tool to manipulate me. Um, he would deny me love and intimacy, which is just as bad. He's weaponizing it. Um, so you go through a marriage without any affection at all. And um, yeah, it really distorts your perception of, of marriage. Joy, when you were on deputation to go to Australia, do you remember staying at my house in Springfield? Vaguely. Vaguely. Um, <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. It's, it was a long time ago, but you guys stayed in my place and went to um, Mike Elstock's church because that's where we were going at the time we went uh -huh. to. And I remember when we were going to church and I thought we were all going to go together and, and you said, um, not to wait, not to wait for you. And I didn't know what that meant, but I, me and my ex went to church. Now looking back, I would, I'm wondering, was, was there abuse happening there in my house? Very probably. Like I say, I have some very vivid memories about certain things, but not everybody else remembers mm -hmm. the same things that I do. Did anybody yes. know about, about the abuse? No. The Jack Hiles crowd teaches women that they are to be their husband's cheerleader and not to air dirty laundry and, if, and to be loyal even to evil um, and to cover up. And so it would have been considered very ungodly to ever tell anybody what was going on. It would also have been considered unspiritual because I'm not trusting God to take care of it. Um, and nobody would have believed me because of who they perceived Larry to be. And if somebody would have believed me or he knew I was telling, he would have done the traditional um, pattern of eating away at my credibility uh, by, you know, they often use she has mental issues. Yeah. Plus, if I told anybody, the consequences would be so bad, it would not be worth it in the home, in the, you know, it, it just, there's a lot of fear there. So the first time I told anybody would have been subtle remarks um, to Pastor Wendell about, well, Larry didn't let me come, even though I promised I'd be here, that kind of thing. Or, um, you know, no, he's got angry at the kids, so we're going to be late or something. But nobody picked up on it, really. Um, and the first time they did <clears throat> was, I don't, it, uh, Jason may remember better, but. Uh, several people went to Pastor Wendell about it and told them, told him. A lady that was living with us, um, different ones of the kids. I was just going to say, you really have two battling dynamics. 
on one side you have you are taught that this is normal so there's really nothing mm-hmm. to tell mm-hmm. and of course you have self-doubts because systematically your confidence is worn down so it's always your fault you always cause this um if, if you were to tell somebody you know you're just really telling on yourself because really you're the problem here um so that side and then the other side is well did he hit you you know like i don't see any bruises and it literally comes down to if 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 you didn't get violent well you know look you, you have to just kind of submit because you know not everyone's perfect and really he's just being mean and you know we all make mistakes and and scott wendell's big thing was all right look he has an anger problem we'll recognize that but you know he can work on that we'll work on um, my dad did not have an anger problem he, had, he did not have an anger problem he didn't do these things because he lost control in anger he did these things because he believed he had a right to do these things and that women were inferior and children were to be broken. That's why he did these things, not because he lost control in a fit of rage. Oh, he used yeah. it to gain control. Oh, yeah, control. absolutely. I had very similar uh, experiences as you did. It was I dragged my ex to three different marriage counselors and they all said, you know, um, the reason why you have marriage problems is because you're not submitting. That is so common. It is so yep. stinking common. I'm so sick of hearing it. It's like, you know, you're not going to address any of the other issues in the marriage. It's, it's all about me submitting. And I remember getting, when I got married to my ex, I remember calling up Pastor Wendell and, and saying, yeah, he's got an anger problem. He's, you know, red-blooded Italian. And um, he says, well, you have to take the good with the bad. You married him. You have to deal with it. And my ex tried to commit suicide once in front of me. And um, I had nobody to tell. And I called I called the pastor and I said, um, what do I do? We were pastoring... Um, a youth group in New Jersey and I'm like and he said well I think you guys should step down from the ministry I said, well I don't think he's going to do that I had the same fears telling anybody because I would lose everything we'd lose yeah. we'd lose our ministry and nobody would believe me just that's that's the way the fundamental Baptists work and um I was told that um, black spot mentality, don't focus on the black spot, but on the big white page or forgiveness. You have to forgive, which means you don't bring it up to him again or to God or to yourself or anybody else. And if you tell anybody, the other thing they say is you're gossiping. Yeah. And you're throwing uh, gas on the fire instead of water on the fire. Throw water on the fire, you know. Yeah. The whole forgiveness thing. Well, you know. Forgiveness requires repentance in the Bible. So um, my abuser never repented of him abusing me. And so um, all all of these things are perversions of God's word to oppress the vulnerable. mm -hmm. Instead of siding with the weak and saying, 
God gave me the power I have as a pastor or counselor to help protect somebody who's coming to me or help. I'm going to use my power to support the system that's oppressing someone else. You become part of the evil instead of part of the solution. And that is the furthest thing from Christianity that it is possible to be. And that's, that is typical. Uh, all the people that we've talked to since 60 Minutes and before and after, every one of them has this problem with their pastor, their church. Yeah, it's not just the IFB um, in my groups and my advocacy. It, every denomination known to man does the same thing, maybe not as extreme as far as like you know, KJV or something, but yeah, there, there's abuse in every, every Christian denomination, which I've discovered. Now, when, when did the abuse get the worst, Joy? When was it so bad? I don't know of a time when it wasn't bad. Um, after the first child is when I noticed it, because it wasn't just me that was suffering. Um, not that I didn't notice it before, but that really made me start thinking, what am I doing? Uh, um, how wrong this was. Um, and then each time he would beat the child, you know, many times I would break into the room, even though he said he's going to correct them. And I would try to pull it, you know, stop him. And I would just get flung against the wall or, and then really cop it for the rest of the month. I noticed um, around 2000 to 2002, um, things were really stepping up a level. And I'm not sure, by that point, we ran the annual Australian sweetheart retreat for pastors and their wives. How ironic is that? Um, and he would speak around the country. And I think just more power he got, the worse his abuse got. Um, and then after we came back, Pastor Wendell pulled us, made him resign, pulled us back for six years of counseling, intense counseling at first. Usually they meet with someone every week and he would be in there two, two, three times a week. Um, and he was held accountable. I was given a safety plan where I was allowed to get up and leave the room. If he started in on his rants, I was allowed to spend the night. I'm uh, one of the pastor's homes for safety if I didn't feel safe, things like that. Um, and then when we returned to Australia, I expected that he would still be held accountable and things would go at the level they had were when we left, but they declined very quickly. And I, the abuse got very bad then to the point where he wasn't just trying to hide it even, he was hide, hurting other people and not even caring. That's the answer to that. All the kids were out of the house at that time, or um, we had uh, Scott had moved to, back to Australia with us. Um, he was living in one of the bedrooms, and then we had another girl living with us that we were helping out of her situation. Didn't stop him, but the rest the rest of the kids were gone. Yeah. Pastor stated that an angry man disqualifies a man for ministry. Um, I agree with that. <laughs> but there's a lot of angry men in leadership positions all over churches. Um, I'm just 
wondering why he was allowed to continue to be angry. And Jason, does did Pastor believe that that your mom was being raped? Um, did he actually believe, you know, you break the law, you should go to jail? I mean, how do you think, how do you think the pastor handled the situation? Do you think it was appropriate? Um, I believe that he thought at each point that he was doing the right thing. I do believe that. Um, and this is just the big picture here. Mm -hmm. um, most, most of the pastors who empower abuse think they're doing the right thing. And the truth is most of the people who are abusing think they're doing the right thing most of the time. Um, it's not enough, you know, to think you're doing the right thing. You have to be doing the right thing. Um, so, no, I don't think he handled it appropriately. Um, but I don't think he understood abuse. I don't think he understood the dynamics of it. I don't, um, I don't think anyone was talking about it. And he certainly wasn't listening. Um, you know, his... I guess so far as to say the obsession was in protecting and preserving marriages. Yeah. And I get that. I get a pastor saying, you know, in a society where, where relationships are breaking down systematically, uh, Christians ought to be helping marriages survive, which when the problems in the marriage are, you know, poor communication or not living out the gospel, mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's really good. That's, that's true. Uh, Christianity should lead to stronger relationships and stronger marriages. But when you get to the point where you forget that the people in the marriage are more important than the marriage, uh, marriage has become an idol. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it, it becomes yeah sinful to, to continue to try to preserve it at the expense of people. Um, and I grant you, you know, as mom mentioned earlier, most of the other kids had gone to Pastor Wendell over the years. And each time he had taken some minor action. Um, usually it was just, you know, a talk, a discussion, um, a warning. A, uh, usually the kids were told, look, you're bitter. And some, what they said was mostly discounted. And, you know, there, there was obviously bitterness or, or as I put it, anger, and you should be angry. It is righteous to be anger when you see abuse, when you see evil. Um, but these kids were kind of, you know, dismissed as, well, you're bitter, so you, you can't be taken too seriously, which, which erased their voice, silenced them. It did it in the name of God. And it, it said, well, he's, he's violent to his wife and kids, but you're being upset about it is the real problem here. That's right. Which, you know, you just, it's such a twisted way of thinking. And, and a child hears that and says, look, this isn't worth having. Um, so when I went to Scott Wendell, this was, you know, in, um, uh, what year was that? Would have been 2002-ish, three, 2003. I went to Scott Wendell and then I was the last in a long line of kids that went mm -hmm. to him with these things. And he finally listened, he finally pulled them off the mission field. And I am convinced to this day that the only reason he actually did something was because he could not see me as bitter. 
I was the good kid. I was the kid who, you know, was a model what he wanted his kids to be. And so he finally couldn't dismiss it as my bitterness, which makes me very upset. Mm. What did you say to him to make him listen? Uh, I... I raised a number of issues, uh, which I won't, I won't go into full detail, but I, I raised a number of issues, but it wasn't until I finally literally said to him, if something isn't done, this will end up on the front page of, of the news. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, when he understood that it, someone was probably going to be injured or die, is when he finally immediately took decisive action and you know i'm incredibly grateful to him for doing that Mm -hmm. um that was that was the turning of the tide it took another 10 odd years before the marriage ended but that was the point at which things started heading in the right direction even though the, the worst abuse was ahead still it was decisive and so i do appreciate that uh very much and i think he knows that uh, but it's just not enough for it to have to get that far. Yeah, you and, shouldn't have had to even had to say that to him. Yeah, well, and, and if I had been bitter, I don't think he would have listened to me. I, 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 really, been... I really don't think that these pastors, many pastors are not trained whatsoever in abuse. Mm-hmm. They're not trained exactly. at all to recognize it. They... They have blinders over their eyes or they're in their own little bubble that you don't get any training in this to to recognize this is not a normal, healthy marriage. This is a, like you say, um, the, the relationship or the situation is going to escalate. It always does. That is a fact. I got out of my marriage before it got physical because I knew that it eventually was going to escalate to get worse. Now, were the the church people supportive of you, Joy, or did you think they were more supportive of Larry? They didn't know. They didn't know. They knew that we came back from the mission field um, and Pastor had him read a letter up front um, stating marriage issues and things he needed to work on and so we were going to be back in America for a while for counseling so they had no idea marriage issues could have meant I'm the trouble and I was specifically told do not talk to anybody about this I will give you one pastor's wife who you can go to but I don't want to hear of any gossip and um so I have to say people there were very kind um, and loving to us, but um, it was, they still called him pastor. And um, it was just a few months. I'm not exactly sure how long, but he was up teaching an adult Sunday school class of three to 400 people, even though the next day in counseling session, he would be shouting at the counseling pastor, denying Uh, what the pastor was trying to show him was happening. Yeah, and they thought the solution for me was to keep me busy. So I was put to work teaching K-4 and teaching music lessons. Um, 
and always busy, like in a music program. And like when Sharon, my youngest, was sick for, I don't know, she missed about four weeks of school. I wasn't there for her at such a crucial time. Her losing all her friends, her culture, mm. not having any friends here, it, it damaged our relationship. Um, no. I will say, Pastor, um, the pastor's, for once, somebody believed me and I could, you know, the thing says I was allowed to keep a log of what happened <laughs> um, to help Larry understand what was happening. Whereas before that was considered a sinful thing, um, but it was used in the counseling sessions. And it was like they a fly was on the wall in our home because the counseling pastor would say, and this happened when he did that, right? And I'm like, yes, you know, so... He, um, Pastor Eifert, knew a good bit of what he was talking about, mm -hmm. but they never put two and two together. Like, they seemed surprised when 60 Minutes presented it as being, you know, he was going to be arrested for rape charges. But when there's such control for 40 years, of course there's going to be rape, you know. But it, things like this, if they were uh, more clued in and more educated on the dynamics, they would have caught and they wouldn't have had me keep living with him. They would have had to separate for my sake, you know, just a number of things like that. But they did do their best to help. They just um, didn't catch everything. Mm. Well, and I think the really telling moment, the 16, 60 minutes interview is when Liam Bartlett asks Pastor Wendell, are you surprised? And of course, Wendell thought about it for a long time and said no. And of course, he couldn't be. You couldn't possibly be knowing what he knew. But the point there is he just never thought about that. He was thinking about protecting the marriage, keeping someone in ministry, etc. He was not thinking, is she safe mm -hmm. at that level? And, uh, yeah, and in, a, in an email from him, he goes, well, you never told us you were being raped. <laughs> You know, I shouldn't have had to. But you didn't which, ask either. Well, didn't ask. And also, the teaching is very clear. In those churches, you, they don't. <laughs> Christians generally don't think you can be raped in marriage. Um, they'd have whole sermons addressing oh, yeah. that topic and never once say, now listen, this does not mean that you can't say no. <laughs> you can't preach on that passage without saying to women, hey, you still have a choice. You're a person and you have a right to decide whether or not you will have sex. That was never said. And that's, that's just staggering. That's horrifying. You know, any pastor who's listening, you must say these things. Paul, Paul was talking in a very particular context, but when you're, you're explaining it and applying it to our day, you must explain to people that submit does not mean you're a slave that that this teaching about sex mm -hmm. does not mean you can rape people like it shouldn't need to be said but it does unfortunately i mean whatever happened to well you're supposed to love your wife as christ loved the church i mean jesus <laughs> would never force himself on you even yeah. jesus gives us free will to choose whether to follow him or not he doesn't make us follow he doesn't make us obey he lovingly 
you know, asks us to obey, but he doesn't force himself on us. So how is treating your wife like that, like a Christian? I mean, women are not receptacles. We're not, we're not body parts. We are people. Yeah. It's wrapped up in a mistaken theology of marriage. Um, when scripture teaches two shall become one flesh, it means a number of things. But what it does not mean is that people lose their individuality and cease to be people individually, that they lose their rights, their, their you know, humanity. And yet that is the one point that you usually hear preached from that statement in scripture that you're no longer your own, you, you know, you should both have the same Facebook account. You should, you should cease to act as two separate individuals. You have an obligation to act like a unit. Well, that's the one thing it doesn't mean. I don't see that in scripture at all, that all those things that you described, it just doesn't, doesn't sound like Jesus to me. I remember when I left my ex I just, I just left. I moved out, took all my things when he was out of town. And my ex went to every church and every pastor that we had ever been involved with and mud slammed me. And he came, you know, with this false humility and, oh, my wife left me and she won't come back and she won't go to counseling anymore. And yeah, he wasn't telling the whole story. And then he went to Pastor Wendell, and I thought, oh, great. And he, you know, he told me this story. He said, um, yeah, I visited Pastor Wendell and, you know, told him I was sorry for anything that I'd done wrong, you know. Well, I heard that Pastor Wendell had said, you need to let her go. You cannot make her love you. So I was surprised at that. I thought that Pastor Wendell was going to come and try and make me go back with my ex-husband. The pastor that we were serving under tried to. Had us go to a counseling session after I moved out. But um, I, told, I told the pastor we were serving with, I said, no, I'm, I'm done. I mean, short of a parting the Red Sea miracle, I am not moving back in i'm not staying married to this man and of course he was sitting there with his crocodile tears you know i'm really sorry and i won't do it again and well i don't believe you uh and i left and um i said i'm going through with this divorce so it ends it ends today but yeah i was really surprised that the pastor actually defended me instead of defending my ex but um, that's great to hear yeah i never really had any any other interactions with him anyway for whatever for whatever it's worth i'm glad that he um he defended me and wouldn't let my ex manipulate me again so back to your story joy when did you decide Enough is enough. I cannot stay here any longer. I need to get out of here. When, when did that day come for you? When did I uh, decide to leave? Um, 
after we came back to Australia and I saw how he was hurting other people too. And we were running a ministry, ironically again, for um, people who had been abused, abused victims, similar to Reformers Unanimous. We're trying to do that in Australia. And I saw him hurting these people who were so vulnerable and, you know, hurting. He's hurting them. And it just, we had one guy living on the camp with us. And yeah, so I just said that's, oh, and then, okay. For me, the straw was going to um, a funeral at church and he, him ranting and yelling at me for something that wasn't true. And I didn't say anything, but he kept saying, if you say another word, I'm going to turn right around and we won't go. And I still didn't say anything. The whole trip, I never said a word. And he kept saying, if you say anything. Anyway, so finally he said, all right, that's it. And he turned around in the middle of a, there was three lanes going one direction, a median strip and three others. He flipped around and started driving in the opposite direction of cars coming at us and swerving and honking. And, you know, it's not the first time. Um, So anyway, I... Scott was living not with us at that point, but somewhere else in the city with his mm-hmm. own flat, his own apartment. And I, mm-hmm. I said, can I come stay with you? And so I just took the things I wanted and um, he picked me up and wow. that was it. it. Sounds really scary. Jason gave me the, um, the backbone and the knowledge you know the biblical that it's okay with god if i do this you know otherwise i just kept saying no god doesn't we do they have to stay i have to stay and jason just changed my thinking to understand what god really is like you know and what he really says about abuse so i'm grateful yeah thank god for jason oh my word you have no idea (laughs) now Jason, you, um, so do you think that Larry doesn't think that what he did was wrong? I mean, he admitted to, to the rapes, right? He pled guilty and took a deal for a lower sentence. It turned out, uh, because I wrote him in prison quite regularly, um, and it turned out that, um, I think he kind of viewed that as his penance, his, if he did this, everyone would forget about everything and move on as if nothing had happened. Um, no, I don't think he thinks he did anything wrong with the rapes. Um, it's kind of, you know, he knows he made mistakes. He knows he wasn't a perfect dad. Uh, he knows he wasn't a perfect husband. And that's, that's about the extent of it. Um, you know, it's ironic that you talk about a miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. The, the irony and the silliness of it all is that the only miracle that would be necessary in these kind of cases is repentance. Not, not you know, I'm not talking about remorse and tears and I won't do it again. I mean, real repentance that says, you're right, I did it and I destroyed the marriage and I violated it. And, and I'm going to, you know, spend the rest of my life trying to make it right. And I'm going to take the penalty. I'm going to, I'm going to go to the police and admit everything I've done. And I'm going to, 
to walk away and let you rebuild your life. Like these are you know, the kind of things that true repentance would do. Um, but that's not something you see in, in dad and in, um, in most of these Christian abusers. It's not that it can't happen. It just usually doesn't. I think it usually doesn't because the gospel is not what's running them. Repentance is literally just right at the beginning of Christianity. Mm-hmm. If you don't repent, you're not a Christian. Uh, and yet it seems impossible for these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, and that's where you have to really. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to have a part two of this interview with Joy and Jason. They have a lot more to say. And even if you are not married or you or consent in marriage isn't really something that you're concerned with, there are a lot of other topics that we're talking about in this interview that are really important, especially if you're an abuse survivor or you know somebody that's going through abuse. Jason has a lot of valuable, valuable insight as a pastor that has gone through abuse. And as you As you've already heard, Joy and Jason, they have struggled with a lot of trauma, some things that they're still working through, yet they still worship the Lord. They still have their faith intact. Not that they don't have questions, not that they have, that they're perfect, but they are trusting in the true God of Christianity. And You may be uncomfortable listening to some of this content. It's uncomfortable for me. It's it's very difficult for me to listen to people that I care about, people that I know, going through something that painful. But the Lord can use our trauma, our suffering, to help other people. And that's why they agreed to come on the show, is because they want to help you listeners, those of you that have these same questions, these same struggles. So I hope that you join us for part two of my interview with Joy and Jason Harris. So we will see you next week. God bless you. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org, where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope to see you next week.